You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. This week, we're asking, did the book that unleashed the fire and fury over President Trump capture the man. President Donald Trump has boasted that his nuclear button is much bigger and more powerful than the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's. But it's the launch of a book that set off a bomb of its own. In Fire and Fury, Michael Wolff's gossipy tale of the president's early tenure in the White House, the leader of the free world is portrayed as monstrously selfish, a toddler emperor and one often seen by his own staff as unfit for office. The book has clearly had an impact inside the court that it so colourfully describes. Mr Trump is back on Twitter, lashing out at its alleged inaccuracies. The White House is in full bunker mode, enforcing a workplace ban on personal mobile phones for all its staff members. But Michael Wolff has thanked the president for boosting his book sales. The account gives the impression of the author as resident on a sofa in the West Wing or perhaps a persistent fly on the wall, listening in to the White House whispers. That's ignited a political war being played out live on the US networks. The book that shook Washington and ended... He repeatedly begged to speak with the president and was denied access. And he makes it sound uh, like he was sitting outside the Oval Office every single day, which is just not the case. The first casualty of the book bombshell is the relationship between Trump and his former chief strategist, Breitbart's Steve Bannon, who's quoted extensively in the book, including calling Donald Trump Jr.'s Trump Tower meeting with a Russian lawyer, quote, treasonous. I have no knowledge of anything to do with that meeting. Okay. But what I can tell you unequivocally is that the allegations and insinuations in this book, which are, which are a pure work of fiction, are nothing but a pile of trash through and through. Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. Crooked Hillary Clinton also played these cards very hard and, as everyone knows, went down in flames. I went from very successful businessman to top TV star to president of the United States on my first try. I think that would qualify as not smart but genius and a very stable genius at that. Michael Wolff said, and I'm quoting, 100% of the people around Donald Trump, senior advisors, Family members, every single one of them, questions his intelligence and fitness for office. The big juicy gossip here is that Trump is like a child. We are all that. Every man has been told by their wife or her other wives that we are children. A self-made billionaire who revolutionized reality TV and I'm who has sure changed the course of our politics. he's watching and he's happy that you said that. But, but you know, Jake, Mike you can West, be, no, no, you can Mike, be condescending. I'm and, not being no, condescending. I'm trying no, to get to the point be, that Steve Bannon. You can be condescending. That was a snide remark. You're sure he's watching and he's happy. Let me tell you something. Why is Your that network, you can, look, you As can a result of all this, America is caught up in a debate about the president's mental state, despite or perhaps because of his claim to be a very stable genius. So here's the man behind the furore, Michael Wolff, author of Fire and Fury, welcome to The Economist Asks. Wonderful to be here. 
draw for us, if you could, a picture that sums up the White House under Donald Trump. I, I think chaos is the word that um, that probably goes to the to the to the heart of the situation. Um, nobody knows um, what they're doing, why they're doing. Um, what they might otherwise be doing. Um, nobody speaks to anybody else, and everybody um, stands in um, um, in fear of Donald Trump, in um, um, in absolutely often in horror of Donald Trump, um, and always at all times in confusion about what Donald Trump, about who Donald Trump is, what he wants and where he is taking this White House. And because he's such an unusual character, is there also an awe of Donald Trump? You know, I think that there was in the beginning an awe of Donald Trump. That is to say, he had somehow managed to become the president of the United States, and that in itself implied uh, something um, magical. Uh, I, I, I think that awe has passed. Nobody's in awe of Donald Trump um, at this this point. Everybody is at best trying to manage their relationship to Donald Trump and in, in, in some extent manage Donald Trump, although many people have given up on that. And, and tell me about your own journey to the Trump book. You, you got this access to the White House unrivaled so far in the presidency. You describe yourself as almost a resident of the West Wing, the guy on the sofa, the fly on the wall, choose your metaphor, listening along. But how did you come by that access? You know, I was a beneficiary of the chaos I have described. Um, uh, So much was unfolding so quickly in this White House and in such a a uh, disorganized and chaotic and um, at a kind of level of disarray, probably um, unknown um, in any White House before, that I slipped in. I was the least of of everybody's problems. Um, uh, No one, you know, I was was there. Uh, The president had given his tacit okay for me to be there. And um, and that was that was enough. No nobody else, nobody beyond at beyond that point really took much notice of me. And would it be fair to say that you gave President Trump an easier ride journalistically before you got access, in order to get that access? That would not be unknown, would it? Uh, you know, I I don't. I mean, that's that's the rap. Um, some of the rap I'm getting from some of the people in the. Um, in the journalism community, who 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 I think are surprised that I got this this story, um, and and it's really not true. I went into this uh, just just with an open mind from the beginning. Um, I thought Trump is a is a novel a, a novel person, um, a novel person to have in this in this job, uh, completely unique. And I thought, well, who, who knows? Maybe this will work in an unanticipated fashion. I was certainly, again, as I say, absolutely open-minded about this. I was just there to see how this would unfold. And what about what you call yourself journalistic conundrums in, in dealing with such an unusual 
presidency, in particular, American journalism is still often seen as very rule bound about the use of on the record, off the record sources. Some people have said, well, you put quite a lot on the record that was off the, the record. It was not clear where that line lies in the book. Do you think it's a different standard that we might be holding the Trump White House to here? And is that justified in this case? Or do you think it's the same standard you would have applied anywhere? Yeah, it's the same standard I've, I've always applied. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, if something is off the record, uh, it's off the record. Um, the truth is, and, and, um, and everyone who practices journalism knows this, even if they don't say it, that there's often a gray area here on what's on the record, what's off the record. Um, let me just, I'll just give you a, 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 a for instance, um, mm. you know, there's the interview in which someone says, okay, this is, this is off the record. But then midway in the interview, they say, this is really off the record. Um, um, and so, so you're left wondering, well, what, what was... But that's a wiggle room that you're exploiting, isn't that it? That is, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's the wiggle room that I'm exploiting, um, I, I'm there. I'm I'm there just to get the story. That's my job. Um, my job is 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 to is to uh, do is to work for my readers. It's not to protect anybody. It's not to um, it's not to not not to build build uh, um, uh, build chips amass chips so that I can go back and get another interview. Um, I, I'm there. I'm there to to do my job, to write my book. Let's talk a bit about some of the characters who sort of come to the fore. One of them, of course, is is Steve Bannon. Uh, he's lost his job at, at Breitbart, the ultra-conservative uh, website. There's an immediate fallout there for him. He's obviously spoken to you at, at length. Do you regret having caused that particular downfall? Well, I, I regret that he is he um, that things might have happened to him that he didn't want to happen. Um, I certainly don't regret writing what I've written. You don't regret writing what you wrote about Steve Bannon in particular. Yeah, I, I don't regret any about anything that I've written. But what I've written about Steve Bannon, I certainly don't don't regret. Um, um, but yes, I do feel bad that um, that things might not have worked out the way the way Steve wanted them to work out. In what so what do you think Steve Bannon expected from your book? I, you know, I can only, I, I don't know what he expected. My um, uh, my theory would be that he expected um, Roy Moore, the Senate candidate in Alabama, uh, to win, and that would have been a huge win for Steve and a huge loss for um, uh, uh, for Trump. And Steve would have been the kingmaker of the of uh, 2018 um, election and and that he would have used what he said in my book as part of his break with um, uh, with with the president who um, I, I, I believe he regards as an idiot. You believe he regards as an idiot or you heard him saying that to you? You mean did he say the president was an idiot? Um, in yes, in, just give me the context of that. Uh, in in so many words, I think. I mean, in many words. Um, um, uh, among did them, he say the words? He's them, an idiot. Though. Among them, he's lost it. Um, I, I I think that would be yes. But in my um, long conversations with with um, 
uh, with, with Steve, I would s certainly overwhelmingly conclude, yes, he believes he is, he is a man unfit to do this job. And I think the, the difficulty sometimes for readers is knowing is what when it's something that you conclude and you're very good at that kind of writing. I've read you for a long let time. Me, let me let me let me rush let me, you, let me can rush I just in here. Bring that let, question no, to the point. let me rush in no, here to say, you know, because I've been obviously hear, hearing this. This is I am I have written a book. I am the author of this book. I am the person who stands in for what the reader wants to know. Uh, that's my job. My intention was to to let readers get as close to um, seeing what I saw and hearing what I heard. Um, uh, that's what a book is. Um, so I, then you have beyond to that, yourself, I can't. I you? can't. I, you know, I can't. Um, I can't do. Everybody, you know, and this this book has become something larger, some sort of a phenomenon larger than a, than a book itself, and people seem to, seem to wish that I could provide um, something, an absolute truth, or that I could depose the President of the United States. Um, again, let me come back to it. This is a book. You read the book, um, and it either works, works on its own terms. You come to come to trust the experience that I am portraying or not. And we, ha we trust your uh, judgment as a reader on the man and president or, you know, we, or we're questioning it, depending where we're coming from. Your own view of Trump, did it evolve in this time of contact? You must feel that you understand him better. I, this, this, this book, you know, and I've been very careful about that, about this. This is not about my view of of Donald Trump. This is, this is about the view of the people around him. There is no I in this book. It does not appear once, um, um, except in the note about, about how I got this story in the front. It is about the president's people, what they think of him. And you say everyone around him, pretty much everyone around him, describes him as unfit for office. And yet they sometimes seem to defend him as a, a kind of random genius. Of course, he is the man who upended liberal expectations of who would win the election. I think that that was um, uh, once true. I th it, is, it is now, um, uh, at, at, at least as, as expressed in private, not true at all. So what do you think made the difference? When did Donald Trump, in, and this is in the minds of the people you, you describe, I understand that you're, you're filtering through what, what you heard and saw and what you wanted to describe. What changed their mind about Trump? I, I think from day one, just having to, having to, to work with this guy have, and seeing what he was doing from, I mean, literally on day one when he comes out and he exaggerates the size of the the um, inaugural crowds by three or four or five times, um, and, and even exaggeration is is not is not the right word. He just departed from reality, um, and essentially things like that happened on a daily basis. Now these are the people who who went into this White House are good people, professional people, people trying to um, build their own careers. Um, and at some point, they realized, all of them, to a man, that, that Donald Trump was going to damage them as well as potentially damaging the country. 
What then accounts for the residual loyalty, those who are still there? Um, you know, uh, I mean, I think that people know that if you are there and if you are trying to hold on, and many people are um, are there trying to hold on because they they really feel they have a um, um, they have a responsibility. They have a responsibility to protect the country from Donald Trump, in effect. Um, and in order to do that, in order to stay there, you have to do what he demands. You have to make these ritual bows. Um, does that mean that they um, that they believe this? That they actually? Um, um, uh, have some positive feelings about Donald Trump or respect Donald Trump, it absolutely does not. I do think where that is the case, and it tends to be in foreign and security pillars, doesn't it, of, of the administration, do you think, are they making the right decision, McMaster, Rex Tillerson, to stick around? I, I, I think they're making the decision that they believe is, is right, yes, but I actually think, think that the, at the same time they are also trying to, all of them to a man, uh, figure out ways to get out, um, ways to get out in which they, which they will... Um, uh, as best they can protect their own reputations and as as best they can to to leave a situation which is will not be worse after they go which is a i i think a complicated it's complicated to figure out at this this point but let me let me put this in a, in more succinctly i think everybody would rather not be there why do you think this plays in, particularly to, you know, to the decisions that really matter that the presidency has to make? If we look at, at something like that standoff with North Korea, something that, that has troubled presidencies before Donald Trump, it must be said. But of course, the way that he then went about it with the tweets and the, the fire and fury and th that sort of language. Did you come away thinking, look, here is someone who is capable of launching a unilateral nuclear strike? Or did you think perhaps his Twitter button is bigger than the other guy's Twitter button? You know, I, I mean, that's part of the problem. Nobody can really answer that. Um, is he just a guy who, who wants to seem like he is willing to do this? Or is he a guy willing to do this? I think you can make this case either way. I don't really think Donald Trump wants to do anything. I think he is most comfortable when just chaos is, is, is moving around him and he doesn't have to make any decision. Donald Trump is not a man who likes to make a decision. Um, he's not a man who likes to think through anything. Um, he's not a man who um, has, a, has a, an attention span in which you might, um, uh, for instance, uh, go to war. Um, so I, I don't know. So in, in, in other words, it's not as... It's not as simple or as um, as easy as someone who might have might want to do something that you disagree with. It is much more complicated in that you don't even you you literally don't know what he what he wants to do, what he might do, um, and certainly not what he will do. He wants to win, though, doesn't he? It's a word he often uses himself. Uh, he talks about winning as something he's good at, almost independent of what it is he's talking about winning. What do you think he wants to win at 
at this point in his life. You know, it doesn't, I mean, that's the other thing. It doesn't matter what he, what he wins at. It doesn't even matter if he wins. It's just the sense of winning or that it looks like he, he's winning or if someone tells him he's won, even if he has actually lost. Again, we're in this kind of kind of reality becomes becomes um, <laughs> we don't know what reality is is the problem. Where, where do you think he now stands on Russia and the allegations of embroilment with well, Russia? Well, he certainly of, of his believes campaign, he, of course, coming yeah, I mean, he, close to to home with Jared Kushner. Um, I mean, he believes it's untrue. He believes it's just his enemies out out to get him. Um, again, I think that this is that this is a reality situation he in which i would be i would be relatively sure that he absolutely believes this truly in his soul that that um that he has had never had any meaningful truck with russia and when you say he believes that do you think he regrets any of the alleged contact with russia or those who may have been acting on russia's uh, part no i mean he he regrets that it's um uh, whatever has come to light has come to light, um, but I'm sure that again that he believes anything that he did was absolutely um, um, a, a, um, a reasonable and legitimate thing to do. And partly as a result of that, but the other factors and the fly on the wall stuff you describe so colourfully in the account. Do you think his relationship with his daughter, with Ivanka Trump, and with Jared Kushner, her husband, obviously very trusted by by Trump, particularly? on Middle East matters. How has that changed since they've been in the White House? You know, I, I, don't, I think it's probably not changed that much. Um, you know, they have their own problems at this point. I think they're spending a lot of time on their, their own legal difficulties. Um, but Trump has always had a, a particular relationship with his, with his family. They are his... Um, um, they are his agents, his factotums, um, his his lackeys, his um, senior managers. Um, that doesn't mean he's been particularly close to them. That it means that they've been useful to him, um, and he is useful to them. I think it is, as in all things Trumpian, the very transactional relationship. And yet. Just looking at this as an outsider, I would have thought I did see, and I went round a bit in the the campaign, saw him with Ivanka. Isn't there a closeness there? Isn't there a sort of protective closeness between Ivanka Trump and uh, and Donald Trump? Or do you see it differently? Again, I I, I think so, but I think it is transactional. Um, uh, They both get something out of it. Um, You know, one of the ways that, that Ivanka is described by people around around both her and him is that is that she is very much like her father that is to say transactional all about about what she has to give in terms and in return what she gets you wrote a book uh, in 2009 called the man who owns the news about Rupert Murdoch Rupert Murdoch has been in, in frequent contact with Donald Trump uh, uh, he does seem to be one of the few people whose opinion I think Donald Trump respects how have you seen that relationship evolve. I think it's um, uh, interesting and and telling. Um, uh, Rupert Murdoch always thought that um, that Donald Trump was a uh, was a lightweight and um, someone you didn't have to take seriously on a 
on a on a business basis and certainly not on a on a political basis. Um, he really wasn't interesting at all to Murdoch. Um, when he became uh, the president, um, that changed because because Murdoch always likes to have have influence with um, with the most influential people, and um, and he certainly went back, made an effort to court a Murdoch. He didn't have to make such a big effort because Trump is is um, in awe of Murdoch, but Murdoch re- repaired the relationship and um, uh, and began to talk to him on a frequent basis. However, he did not change his opinion of Trump, who he regards as continues to regard as as a lightweight in every respect. And, um, and I think Rupert Murdoch is one of those people among, or is among the many people wholly confounded by this turn of events that finds Donald Trump the president of the United States. Yeah, and you have a, an entertaining account there of a, a conversation that they have about uh, immigration uh, policy and its consistencies or, or otherwise on that. But here's a question. Do we obsess too much about Donald Trump and his personality, as fascinating as that is? Wouldn't it be better to concentrate on the stuff he's actually doing, on his policies? Isn't that the bigger danger for America? No, I think that's a completely naive way of looking at this. And it's a, a Washington way um, in which everyone would, and, and it's actually, it actually is a uh, is the the uh, sort of the key factor in in as it were normalizing him. Um, Donald Trump is not interested in policy. Donald Trump doesn't care about policy. Donald Trump mostly doesn't even know what policy um, he might be advocating at a at a given time. Um, Donald Trump is all about his personality. Um, everyone in the White House refers to him um, as in, in, in some context as a, as a child, and, and what they mean by that is, is his need for immediate gratification. So if you don't focus on who this man is, on, on his impulses, often his uncontrollable impulses, on the way he behaves from, from minute to minute, then you're going to miss... Uh, the whole nature of this beast. I think what's perhaps changed in the debate since the the book was talked about and finally appeared after a bit of legal to and fro is this idea that Donald Trump might be mentally incapable of being president, which is, of course, a very high bar to have to prove. Do you think that's a fair way of trying to uh, deal with a president, even one as divisive, as contentious as Donald Trump, to bring up that question of mental capacity? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously, mental capacity is a, is a pretty serious measure. And if you doubt that the president has the mental capacity to do the job, that is 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 certainly a, a highly relevant political question. It's it's not an argument that I make in this in this book. Um, I, I I make an argument, um, or let me let me put it more accurately, the people around him make an argument an implicit argument about his about whether he has the capabilities of of doing this this job um, and and those two things at some at some point um, align but they don't necessarily align and and on that threshold 
everybody in the White House believes he is not capable of doing this job and capable in terms of his ability to, um, uh, to, to absorb, parse, analyze information, um, his willingness to seek out information, um, his, um, his very attention span, they do not believe is, um, um, is focused enough for him to make the decisions that he has to make. But given that he reached the White House and given that he was uh, elected, however much many people may not like the fact that that's the way that America voted, do you see all of that as a bar to him running again or to getting elected to the presidency a second time? Yeah, I don't think he'll run again. I mean, this is, I, I've uh, obviously, obviously um, no way of knowing this, um, but I would say um, if, if you if you asked me to bet, I would say definitely he's not running again. Um, that um, um, he's, he's, he's proved his point. He can be elected president. So what does he do? You mean, what does he do in the future? I think he goes and he just goes on to be the most famous man the world has ever known, which is precisely what he wants. And to be able to do that without having to actually do um, what the presidency demands would be bliss for Donald Trump. Thank you very much, Michael Wolf. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. So what are your thoughts on the fire, the fury and all the questions that stem from that? Should America be questioning the sanity of the president? We're on email radio at economist.com. We're also on Twitter at Economist Radio. And one more ask, please do rate us on your iTunes. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.